I suspect that some of you uh, are gourmet food lovers. You like uh, something a little, a little special, a, a meal that has uh, not only had some, some heart put into it, but some, uh, some skill put into it. I am not a connoisseur of fine food. I don't have quite that appreciation for, uh, uh, for high cuisine. And so most of what I've learned about the uh, Michelin restaurant rating system has come from a movie called The 100-Foot Journey. Um, but, but the Michelin rating system is, is a big deal. If you are in uh, that industry, it is a, a dream to be awarded uh, one of the coveted stars or, or two or uh, for the top uh, restaurants in the world, a three-star ra- rating. Jose Andres was uh, awarded just two Michelin stars. I say just, but it is a major accomplishment uh, for, a, uh, for a chef and a restaurant owner. He was awarded them in 2016, and he said this, I could live my life without the Michelin star, but life wouldn't be the same. It had for him a sense of importance and gave his life a sense of significance that went uh, all uh, beyond uh, all normal uh, uh, critics' evaluations. Because it was such an honor, what happened last September was particularly surprising. There was a renowned chef in, in France called Sebastien Bra, and he and his father had, had won a three-star rating for Michelin for 18 years in a row. And last year, he won another three-star rating. But in September, he contacted Michelin and he asked to give his stars back. He actually asked to be removed from the Michelin Guide and uh, he uh, gave his reasons and he described in, in a, uh, an article exactly what was going through his mind. He said he wanted to be dropped from Michelin's rankings because he felt that the pressure to perform was too much. He said, maybe I'll be less famous, but I accept that, adding that he would continue to cook excellent local produce, but without wondering whether my creations will appeal to Michelin's inspectors. He had taken something that he loved and something that he was gifted in, something that he was experienced in, and just add one thing, a surprise visit from someone whose sole goal was to evaluate whether you still measured up. And that one visit, even though it, would, it, it resulted in him earning tens of thousands of dollars uh, more for his restaurant, uh, more fame, more applause, more recognition, he said, I don't want it. It's ruining things for me. I don't know the world of gourmet restaurants, but I think I know exactly how Sebastian Bra feels. I know it because I've experienced it. I've seen it, and I think you have as well. You don't have to add much to something you love to turn it into something that you hate. With just a little tampering of a recipe, medicine can become poison in our lives. Sebastian still loves to cook. He still comes alive when he cooks. He will still continue to give Uh, what Michelin said were spellbounding uh, food uh, on on his menu. He will continue to do that, but 
He wants it to be something that he loves, not something that he hates. And so he has taken from the formula of his life a critic charged with evaluating him by their standards. I see the same thing happening with people's faith, and it really cuts across the board. Uh, I believe all religions, people of all religious backgrounds, will at some point experience something like the Michelin critic in their own life. And when we experience that, it can come not only as a shock to our, our, our system, it can rob our joy, and it can destroy what is, would otherwise be uh, a true and a vibrant faith for us. And today we're beginning a new series called How God Sets People Free. And we're looking at a book which has been used of God over hundreds of years to set people free from the Michelin star version of religion. It's been used to help people find a joy in their relationship with God where otherwise there would have been uh, a sense of being choked by, uh, uh, by criticism, by evaluation, by pressure to conform, uh, by r- rules and, and externals that would have gotten in the way of a simple faith in Jesus Christ. And so just as this, this letter has been used to set people free for hundreds of years, I pray that it'll do that in the lives of our congregation. I pray that it'll do that in my life and in your life. So if you have your Bibles, I encourage you to turn with me to Galatians chapter 1. And I'm going to get us started by reading the first 10 verses. Here the Apostle Paul is addressing a church that has traded Christianity and is in the process of trading Christianity for fool's gold, for a a different version of Christianity, which it it turns out is no longer Christianity anymore. They're being influenced by people who want them to trade the free grace of Jesus Christ for Michelin star religion. I'll read from verse 1. Paul, an apostle, Not from man nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the the dead, and all the brothers who are with me. To the churches of Galatia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of God our Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. I'm astonished that you're so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so I now say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Now Paul is going to get in in this letter to addressing the fool's gold, the the false hope that the people in Galatia had begun to put their hope in. Before he gets there, he's going to 
he's going to confirm with them that they understand what the true hope that they have in the gospel. He shows them how the gospel saves us from a dying world, how it will set us free from a a world that is broken and in decay. The gospel saves us from a dying world. Now, you probably noticed that I read this passage a little angrier than I I sound, a little more firm than, than is my normal tone. And as you even read this letter, you're supposed to feel a sense of the tone. Uh, you, even two verses into the letter, you know something's up with the Apostle Paul. He's got to be in his bonnet. His outrage dispels his normal pleasantries. If you read the introductions to Paul's other letters, they usually start with a, a really warm uh, introduction. Uh, in, in his uh, letter to, Rome, to, the, to the Romans, he says, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. And, and you know, if, if, if the Apostle Paul calls you a saint and tells you that you're loved by God, you kind of get a warm fuzzy. It, it, it feels good. Yet with the letter to the Galatians, it's the letter that Paul has written that doesn't contain any of that. It's, it's a little more harsh. There's, there's no warmth. There's no fuzzy. In verse 2, he just writes, to the churches of Galatia. You've experienced this before, right? You walk in the door, hi, I'm home. And like just from the first word or two of the response you get back, you know this is some, something's up, something's going wrong. Uh, it's going to be a difficult evening. That, that's kind of the tone that, that begins Paul's letter here. When Paul lets loose in verse 6, the Galatians have already been bracing themselves. What is he going to say? And he lets loose. He says, I'm astonished that you're so quickly deserting him. Paul had just evangelized this this region a, a year earlier. He had shared the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, and people had come to trust him. Uh, they had come to put their faith in Jesus, and their lives were changed. But now, less than a year later, they were already turning to fool's gold. They they were already beginning to put their faith in something other than the true gospel. The scene is a little bit like when Moses went up on Mount Sinai. He gets the two tablets and he comes down and like before they'd even gotten out of the gate, the people of Israel were worshiping the golden calf. it's, It's some of that sense of outrage, of astonishment, of what's going on here. Before he gets into all that, though, he reminds them of the good news they'd accepted. So if you look at verse 3 and 4, Paul spells out the heart of the gospel. He says, Jesus gave himself for our sins. He's describing an exchange of one thing for another. Now, last week, many of you made a different exchange. You gave $5 and you got the essential Bible guide. You, You thought that hey, this is a book that has some value and I'd be willing to pay five. I'm glad that it's at a discount. And uh, you, you thought that there, there, was, there was value in that exchange for you. Many people will do the very same thing with religion. They approach, approach it as their exchange. So they give God some good behavior, uh, some religious observance. 
And in exchange, they hope for his approval and life after death. That seems like a good deal for most people, and they assume that's probably what Christianity teaches. But it's not. The good news is about a different exchange, Paul says to us here. It says, Jesus gave himself for our sins. He, he didn't give $5 to get a book. He gave his own life in order that he would get our sins, the penalty for our sins, the shame of our sins, all the consequences of our sins. He died for us. He died in our place, and he took our penalty. So the gospel is the good news of Jesus' reversal. It's also the good news of Jesus' rescue. Because in verse 4, after saying that Jesus died for our sins, it tells us what his motivation for. Nobody in their right mind would pay the ultimate price to get somebody's sin. What, what, what possible motivation could he have had? But he gives it to us here. It says it's to deliver us from the present evil age. Those are strange words for modern ears. We... We don't like to think about deliverance from an, an evil age. We, even as we come to the Bible, we aren't really looking for that. We want a few tips to help us with a stressful age. We want some pointers to navigate a challenging age. But the Bible wasn't, doesn't set out to give us that. It, it, it'll, it, it does give us some tips. It does give us some pointers. But the thrust of it, the center of its message is not some tips and pointers to deal with stress and challenges, but it is a, a message of rescue, of deliverance from an evil age. The picture is of a sinking ship that we need rescuing from, or we will sink along with it. That, that's the picture that the Bible gives of the world. And that's why Jesus died in, to uh, take upon our sins for us. And that's what verse 6 calls the grace of Christ. Jesus' grace is his gift. It's what he gives to us. It speaks of what we receive from him freely by, by faith. He uses the same phrase, grace, in his introduction because this is going to shape much of what he says in the letter. Jesus relates to us on the basis of grace, not on the basis of a Michelin star rating system. And there's something in the heart of humanity that struggles to believe that. We so assume, we have been so conditioned by so many people that we have dealt with all through our lives, we assume it's, it's our performance earns us a star. And there must be levels, and there must be grades to how, uh, how, how God sees us, how God relates to us, and he must want our performance. And Jesus breaks that mold. He introduces us to a completely different way of relating to people, and he says it is all by grace. It's a free gift. Now, if you receive that good news and your life is rooted in that grace, it is transforming, and it also is protecting. It guards you from the false, uh, the false hope that we might other, otherwise grasp at. It'll save us from fool's gold. The good news of Jesus delivers us from false hope. It can keep us from looking to things that might seem, seem right, 
might look attractive, but ultimately will disappoint. Keeps us from grasping at religious straws. Now, what had happened in Galatia is, I believe, what happens to many, many Christians. Paul had shared with them the simple message that through turning from their sin and putting their faith in Jesus Christ, they could be forgiven. They could be cleansed and saved from their sins. And they'd experienced joy in being forgiven by God. There was a freedom in their relationship with him, knowing that by grace they had been accepted. They loved God and they loved to glorify him. But then the Michelin star critics showed up. There was a group of ultra-conservatives from the Jerusalem church, and they were saying, believing in Jesus as Messiah, that's really important. Good start. But if you really want God to accept you, you also have to be circumcised. You need to, you need to add something to this, this, this faith thing. Good start, it's just not complete. The Galatians had begun to enjoy the new covenant, but what these, these new teachers were, were uh, trying to force upon them was that they needed to have the sign of the old covenant as well. These ultra-conservatives were later known as the Judaizers because they wanted the Gentiles to not only become Christians, but to become Jews as well, to maintain all of the outward forms and, and uh, uh, trappings of Judaism alongside their Christianity. They were Jews who had put their faith in Jesus as Messiah, but they wanted New Covenant Christians to also maintain all the responsibilities of Old Covenant faith. In verse 6, Paul calls that message a different gospel. And he said it amounts to desertion. It seemed to them, they were, hey, what could be so wrong? We're just, we're adding a little something. It's still in the Bible. It it seems like a good thing. It's not like we're, we're trying to step back. This seems even more earnest, more commitment. And Paul said, yeah, that is actually walking away from, from God and the free offer that he has made to you. Adding anything to the gospel of grace in order to please people is forsaking God. Now, at adding to the gospel, Paul says in the end of verse 6 that they're turning to a different gospel, not that there is one. The word gospel just means good news. And Paul's saying turning to a different gospel is not good news. It is not going to help you. And in fact, there is no other gospel. In verse 7, Paul says that they're distorting the gospel of Christ. And again, we don't like this language. We prefer the language in Canada in the 21st century of everybody finding their way up the same mountain. Just taking different paths. Paul says, that's a distortion. what, What somebody is presenting to you as just a slightly different path is actually a dismantling of that path. And it's going to a different place. You are heading with to a different destination. We don't worry too much today about how people understand the gospel. As long as they make some vague references to the Bible, we assume, hey, it's all good. We, we make some casual observations about whether we like the style or the form. But Paul says... You distort the gospel. You get this a little bit wrong and it's like you're turning your back on God, forsaking him and distorting the good news that he has 
given to save you from, save you with. Adding to the gospel, changing the gospel, subtracting from the gospel, doesn't matter how you do it, it is a dismantling of the gospel, and it's not good news. Today, there is a lot of, a lot of distorting of the gospel going on. There's a lot of fool's gold for sale in the name of Christianity. So Jesus, for instance, is preached as the gospel of financial success. Jesus is preached as a gospel of physical healing. Jesus is preached as a gospel of personal fulfillment. And the problem is, that's not what the gospel is. That's not the heart of Christianity. That is not the heart of the good news that we've been given. And ultimately, it is not good. It's not the news that uh, God has announced to us. People also try to add to the gospel as well. There will be Michelin critics at some point in your life that will come to you and say, this believing in Jesus thing, excellent start. Very commendable. That, that's, that's a good, good place to start. But for God to accept you, you really need to follow our traditions. Or you really need to speak in tongues. Or you really need to send your kids to Christian school. Or for God to accept you, you really need to, to vote conservative. Or for God to, to, to accept you, you really need to complete the E100. That's, that's what you need to do to, in order to God, for God to accept you. And what the scriptures would tell us is there is the, the E100. Hey, it's a great thing. Reading through the scriptures is a wonderful thing. It will help you. It won't earn you any extra stars with God. God won't love you more. God won't put you in on, on a little higher notch in his level of acceptance because you have read a certain number of chapters from the Bible. And you don't need to complete the E100 or anything else other than repentance and faith in Christ in order for God to save you by his glorious grace. Adding anything, to the gra- adding anything to grace and it's not grace anymore. A different gospel just isn't good news. God feels so strongly about this that he calls down a curse on anyone who ter- teaches otherwise. You heard me when I was reading that, right? Two times. Uh, first in, in verse 8 he says, Even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. Then again in verse 9, he says, If anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Like That's strong, strong language, right? We don't, we don't call down curses on people usually. It's just when they tamper with the gospel, when they get the good news of Jesus Christ a little bit wrong, and it can even sound like, what could sound more harmless than adding a little something from the old covenant in order as a requirement for for uh, salvation. What if one of our elders, like you respect our elders, right? what if one of our elders were to add just a little bit of a little bit extra to the gospel? The the passage says that they should be cursed, right? Like, what if your pastor 
What if your pastor adds a little something to the gospel and says, yeah, repenting and, and putting your faith in Jesus is good, but you really need to do this. The scripture says, I should be accursed. What if the Pope were to add something to the gospel, just to update it a little bit, make it a little more 21st century, repent and put your faith in Jesus, but then do a little bit, a little bit extra. The scripture says he should be accursed. Anyone. If it says the Apostle Paul or an angel should be accursed for tampering with the gospel, then that includes Joseph Smith. That includes uh, just about anyone you can think of. The, the prophet Muhammad, it, Pierre, uh, uh, Justin Trudeau. It, it, it includes me, your elders, your most respected um, Bible teacher, whoever it is, if they are messing with the gospel, the scripture says they should be accursed. It's that important. You tamper with the recipe for your medication just a little bit and it will become poison to you. It is deadly to you. And it's that important to God. Because God wants as many people as possible to get this, mis- this medicine. So the question I have for you this morning, if God is that serious about something that just a little tampering and brings a curse down on that person, are you absolutely certain that you've got the recipe right? Are you sure that you know this good news that the scriptures proclaim? Are you certain that you haven't bought fool's gold or false hope? How well do you understand this gospel, this good news about Jesus Christ that the Bible says is serious enough that if you tamper with it, if you add something to it or subtract something to it as a condition for salvation, you're under his curse. Do you know the gospel well enough to to be certain about what you know and where you got it from? So the gospel saves us from a dying world. It also saves us from fool's gold. Finally, the gospel delivers us from a doormat's trap. The good news helps us stop living at the mercy of the Michelin critics, whoever they are in our lives. It gives us confidence and certainty and saves us from a doormat's trap. Watch how the passage develops this thought. Now, Paul just demonstrates in this chapter and throughout the letter this remarkable confidence. He's got people disagreeing with him here, people that are teaching something opposed to him over here, and he has this sense of composure, confidence, and certainty. In verse 1, he tells us why. He introduces himself with these words. Paul, an apostle, not from men, nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. Paul's confidence was unique. It came from the fact that he was directly commissioned by Jesus Christ. He was an elite Pharisaic Jew, and he had been trained thoroughly in the Hebrew Scriptures. He had a strong command of the Word of God. And he ruthlessly persecuted the church. He did all of that until he met the resurrected Savior, Jesus Christ. Jesus met him after his resurrection, met him on the road to Damascus, 
and Paul was changed by him. He heard the word, the word of the Lord and knew that he had to respond. Jesus sent him out to spread the faith that he'd once tried to destroy. And so Paul knew firsthand that people will either trust in God's word or they will put their trust in human words. They'll put their trust in human opinion. And so I want to ask you, as you examine your faith, how much of what you really believe did you get from God's words? And how much of them have you got from your most trusted, uh, go-to religious figure? Could be an uncle, it could be a grandfather, could be a parent, could be a, a, a religious teacher, it could be a pastor, whoever it is. Did you get what you understand about the good news of Jesus Christ from some person that you could point to? Or do you have the confidence that you have heard it from God himself in the scriptures? We can become a doormat for the most religiously persuasive person in our lives if we don't know what God has given us in his word. And if we, ha- if we, don't, if we can't look to the scriptures and say, say, no, this is what I believe. This, this is where my thoughts and feelings and understanding of God is rooted. Paul had that confidence. In verse 10, Paul states the doormat's trap from a different perspective. He asks, am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. See, Paul found his approval in in God. After he met Jesus on that road to Damascus, he found his approval in the acceptance he received from God, and it freed him from having to seek it in other people. When Paul met Jesus on the Damascus road, he knew that following Jesus would mean the disapproval of his parents. They had sent him to Jerusalem. They had sent him for his schooling. They had given him the education under the, under the rabbi Gamaliel. That would involve some, he would have to deal with their disapproval. He knew that it would also mean the disapproval of the, the rabbi who had trained him. It would mean the disapproval of the co-workers who had joined with him in persecuting Christians. For Paul, following Jesus Christ would mean the disapproval of almost everyone he knew. And he would never have been able to bear the weight of that disapproval if he didn't first find his acceptance and his approval, his affirmation, his sense of worth, all of that in Jesus Christ. He found his acceptance with God and it gave him the strength to handle the lack of acceptance and the rejection that he he faced from many people. When he knew that it was God speaking, he knew he had to respond. And he knew that the approval of God was worth more than any applause that he might receive from the people around him. I don't know where a passage like this hits you as as a person. Uh, For me personally, I grew up with an incredible craving for people's approval, living for affirmation, living for uh, 
Someone to say that my life had meaning, that my life had some worth. And it it was almost as if, if I don't get it from people around me, then I don't know whether my life has value. If I don't get a star from from the teacher or from my parents or from from people around me, I don't know. It's like the guy who said, I could still live, but I'm not sure life would be worth living. My greatest regrets in life today are things that I did to make people like me. In fact, I would do things that would make me disrespect myself more just because I knew that it would get me more approval from other people. I'd, make, I'd, I'd like myself less in order for other people to like me more. And that, that destroys something inside you. That, that messes with your soul, right? You, 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 when you can't respect yourself because you know that you're, you're trading and sacrificing things that you hold to be dear in order for people to give you their approval, in order for the Michelin critics to give you one of their stars, you feel the conflict inside. So I, stri- st- I, I was striving for that approval and I pushed myself to compete for it. But when I met Jesus Christ as a college student, I knew that something was different. What I understood, even though I understood very little, what I understood about Jesus Christ is that I entered into a relationship with him unlike any other relationship I've ever started. I started the relationship with him by admitting how far short I'd fallen of all his standards. In fact, Jesus said, you can't have a relationship with me unless you admit how great a sinner you are. And the amazing truth that in recognizing my sin before Jesus and his holiness, that I could not experience his condemnation, not see him get out a clipboard to begin the evaluation, but to see him respond to me in that grace and say, that sin, that falling short of, of, of my standard, that's exactly why I came for you. That's exactly why I died for you. That's, the, that's, that's my love for you. And that love healed me. It continues to heal me. If you're a recovering people pleaser, it's not an overnight thing. But whenever people's opinions begin to take hold, have a greater uh, hold on me than I know that they should, I know where I can go. I go into God's presence and I feel grace. I receive the grace of Jesus Christ, the only one and my only person I've ever met who will consistently, every time, respond to me, not on the basis of my performance, but on the basis of his love to me, which I receive by simple repentance and faith. That's the good news of the gospel. This is what sets people free. And so as we seek to lay hold of that, I ask you again, do you know this good news? Have people come into your life and tampered with it? Do you know the good news from the word of God so that you know that you haven't just got it secondhand, that you have a firm foundation to stand upon? And if you have come to stand upon it, stand tall 
in the confidence and the affirmation, the joy that comes through the gospel of his free grace. Let's look to him in prayer. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the joy and the freedom of the good news of Jesus Christ. I thank you how Jesus' grace gives us air to breathe. It, it frees us from the critics who would seek to control and evaluate. I pray for any, any this morning who are still living to please people. Help, th- help them to see how you love them, not on the basis of their performance. Help them to see how by turning to you instead, you could be, uh, they, they can be free. Set them free, Father, as they look to you in faith. And Father, I pray that you'd protect us, uh, protect us personally, protect us as a church from critics who would make us compete for their stars. May our fellowship be guarded from their influence. And Father, may your gospel set us free as we guard and treasure it in our life and as we rejoice in your salvation. In Jesus' name, amen.